In the 1980s and 90s, my favorite baseball player was Ozzie Smith. He was the shortstop of the St. Louis Cardinals. I was a shortstop on my Little League team. And when I thought about the player that I hoped to be, I hoped to be Ozzie Smith. Now, he's a Hall of Famer. I, I'm not quite there yet. I'm close. But, uh, but I tried to know everything there was to know about him about how he handled himself on the field, how he turned to double play, what his batting stance was like. I also wanted to know things about his life in general. Like I knew all of the restaurants that he owned in St. Louis. I I knew about his personality. I knew a little bit about his family. Um, He came to my hometown, which was a Cardinals uh, town, uh, one day and you could bring your baseball cards up and get him to autograph them. And so I went and stood in line with my folks and got Ozzie Smith's autograph. I still have it today on a baseball card that I I have. Um, I I would guess in the 1980s and 90s, there was not anyone who knew more about Ozzie Smith than I did, except maybe Ozzie Smith himself. But even with that, I can't really say that I knew Ozzie Smith. I knew a lot about him. In fact, I knew a lot, a lot about him. But I didn't really know him. And I'm guessing there are a lot of people in the world, maybe even a lot of people here this morning, who would describe their relationship with God very similar. Uh, that's the whole goal is to know a lot about God, to know about his personality, to know about the things he owns, things he does, how he handles himself. But can you say that you really know him? Isaiah chapter 43 is going to tell us that. In, in fact, if you've got a listening guide, I'd love for you to pull that out and you see that that's at the very top. The Lord is a personal God. The Lord is a personal God. In 1 Samuel, there's a woman named Hannah who is struggling against her infertility. And she begs God. Give me an opportunity to have a son. In fact, makes a promise. If you'll give me a son, then I will dedicate him back to you. And he will grow up in the temple. Won't grow up in my house. Will grow up in the temple serving you. And, and she does become pregnant. She has a son. They name him Samuel. And Samuel, once he's weaned, goes and lives in the temple. And one night he's laying asleep. And hears somebody call his name. And so he hops up, runs down the hall to Eli, who was the priest at the time. And essentially says, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call you. Goes back, lays down, voice again, Samuel hops up, goes and sees Eli. A couple more times this happens. Finally, Eli realizes what has happened and and he says to Samuel on the last time, the next time you hear that voice, just say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And so Samuel lays down, hears the voice again and understands it's God who is speaking to him. And that's my prayer for all of us today, that we will wake up to realize that we have a personal relationship with God. And we'll see that clearly in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. 
I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Pay special attention to verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So God reveals himself. I am the Lord. And if you'll notice in your Bible, it's not on the screen, but in your Bible, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. You see that a bunch throughout the scripture. And when you see it, it's a stand-in for God's personal name, Yahweh. That's how God introduced himself, again personally, to Moses on the mountain through the burning bush. This is my name, Yahweh. A lot of times in the scripture, we see God referred to by a title or description. But when you go to introduce yourself, you don't uh, say, hello, my name is doctor, or hello, my name is plumber. Uh, You say, hello, my name is, and then you say your personal name. And Yahweh is God's personal name. But the Israelites so revered that name. They considered it so holy that they refused to say it. They just couldn't bring themselves to say Yahweh from their sinful lips. And so they started using a stand-in. Hence the tradition of Yahweh being referred to in the scripture as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But it is his personal name. I am Yahweh, your God. Then it says the Holy One of Israel. As we'll see in just a second, the nations that surrounded Israel at the time, they worshipped lots of idols. And, and so they didn't have just one God that they believed in. Israel was unique in this way. So when God says that he is the Holy One, he's saying he is the one and only of Israel who is holy. And then he says, your Savior. Now, the, the, the Israelites would have understood this word Savior very specifically. We might receive it metaphorically, but... They knew, for example, their ancestors were saved literally over and over again by God. Clearly seen when he rescued them out of Egypt from slavery. More recently in their past, King Hezekiah was in trouble because the Assyrian army was surrounding Jerusalem, essentially waiting to either attack it or starve it. And Hezekiah turns to God And says, we need you to save us. And God sends an angel. And the angel kills 150,000 Assyrian soldiers. Rescuing his people and rescuing Hezekiah. That was not too far in the rear view mirror of the people who are listening to Isaiah in chapter 43. He is the savior. But if you notice in your listening guide, as God reveals himself in these ways, there is a personal connection. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh, your God. He's the Holy One, the unique one and only of Israel. He is the Savior, but your Savior. As I mentioned, this wasn't the case with other people who worshipped other gods. In fact, the Bible refers to lots of different idols, uh, false deities that people worshipped. Even Israel would get caught up in worshipping these idols. I brought a list. This is not an exhaustive list. But here's some examples of the idols people worshipped at that time. There was Ammon, the chief god of Egypt. Ashtoreth, the Canaanite goddess of war and fertility. Baal, Bel or Marduk. Uh, Chamish, Dagon. Moloch, a chief deity of Moab. When people would worship Moloch, they would sacrifice their own children in worship. 
And even God's people got caught up in this for a while. Tammuz, then the few that we are more familiar with, Zeus, Hermes, Castor, and Pollux. Those are all Greek gods. People were worshiping these gods, these deities, these idols. But the people who made offerings to these idols, they just had a transactional relationship with them. Because that's why you would worship an idol. Because you needed something. If I give this, then I will get that. So there's a young Canaanite couple. They are deciding to have children. They want that child to be healthy. So what do you do? You climb a mountain in Canaan. Up on the top of that mountain, sometime in the past, someone had built a forest of poles. So imagine the top of a mountain with just pole after pole after pole shoved into the ground, a forest of poles. You would go there and you would make an offering to Ashtoreth and her poles. And so if you're that young Canaanite couple and you want a healthy pregnancy and a healthy child for it all to go smooth, this is what you would do. They didn't have a deep and abiding commitment to Ashtoreth. They just needed something. It was transactional. If you were a sailor in the first century, a lot of the oceans were uncharted. It wasn't a guarantee that you were going to make it across. What would you do to guarantee your safety? You would go to the temple of Poseidon and you would make an offering. It was transactional. I give this, I get that. So when God says in Deuteronomy, later affirmed by Jesus, the chief thing that you can do to worship God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. That was radical. They were the only ones to do that. None of these deities demanded love. It's just transactional. You give this to this idol, you hopefully will get that. But here in Isaiah chapter 43, God makes it clear that he offers us more than a transaction. He offers us himself. Now we can fall into that transactional thinking with God. This weekend I was watching uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's on TV. There's a scene at the end where Indiana has to get from one side of something to the other side of something. And there are these pavers and they got little letters on them. And if he steps on the right one, he's safe. But if he steps on the wrong one, he falls down to his death. You, you, you with me? Uh, and, uh, and so he steps here and then he steps there and he steps there. It finally gets across. That's what a transactional relationship with our God looks like. He's not a transactional idol. He's a real God, but we treat him this way when we say, well, I need to get over here. I need this thing. I want that thing. So I'm going to pray a bunch. Then I'm going to read my Bible seven times this week. I'm going to make sure that I don't have any hateful thoughts. Good luck with that. (laughs) I step here. I step there. I'm finally going to make my way across. He's going to give me that thing that I need. He's going to give me that thing that I want. We treat him transactionally. When what he has shown us in the scripture is he is personal. He's uniquely personal. And he offers us something better than transaction. He offers himself. See, these people who worship these false deities, they had no faith in those deities. Just in the formula. I offer this, I get that. But God offers us something much better than a formula. And we see in Isaiah chapter 43 how he treats us personally. In your listening guide, follow along. First, he personally knows us. Verse 1. 
But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. Skip ahead to verse seven. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So both verses affirm that God created us and formed us. Just as he formed Adam from dust, made him in the shape of a man and breathed on him. He took the rib from Adam. He created Eve. God does the same thing to us in our mother's womb. He has known us from our beginning. He has created us. He's formed us. He's fashioned us. And then it says in verse 1, I have called you by name and you are mine. When I go to pick my daughter Willa up from school, she's two years old. It's total chaos in the room. God bless her teachers. I mean, they're doing the best that they can. But it's just a room filled with crazy two-year-olds. And they're running around and they're playing all over the place and they're yelling and screaming. And, and, and Willa is not looking for me when I come. Maybe your kids are just sitting by the door saying, I can't wait for mommy and daddy to come pick me up. My kids are never like that. They feel disappointed when we get there. <laughs> so she's never looking at the door. But when I say the name Willa out loud in that crazy chaotic room, she stops, turns around and comes over. Saying her name, calling her by her name, doesn't just get her attention. It demonstrates the personal relationship that I have with her. No other kid turns around at that time. Just her. The act of calling us by our name is evidence, is an illustration, a demonstration of how personally connected God is to us. But he doesn't just call us by our name. Verse 7 makes it clear. Everyone who is called by my name. God calls us by our name and he calls us by his name. What that means is that God knows everything that our name represents. The good and the bad. Sometimes our name represents something really, really great. A lot of times our name represents something really, really bad. But his name, well, it's a different perspective isn't it? For example, in our name, Scripture makes it clear that we are sinners. And there's no denying that. I mean, a lot of us have sinned on our way to church today. We snapped at one another. We yelled at our kids. I mean, they deserved it, but maybe we took it a little bit too far, of course. Your husband deserved it. You didn't take it too far then. You should have taken it farther. <laughs> There's no denying that we are sinners. But the scripture makes it clear that we're more than sinners. In God's name, in Christ, we're saints. That's how the Apostle Paul refers to all the churches he writes to. To the saints in Philippi, he writes. Both things are true. And God knows both of the names that we carry. Our name and all that represents. And his name. Revelation chapter 22 is a picture of the coming kingdom of God when he reestablishes his kingdom under his authority fully here on earth. And it says in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So in this prophetic picture of things to come, what is on the outside of these people has always been true and on the inside. One day on the outside, They'll see his name on their foreheads. But even right now, we carry his name on the inside. 
So God doesn't just address you according to you. He addresses you according to you and him. So in your own name, you're limited. In his name, you're limitless. In your name, only some things are possible. In, in his name, nothing is impossible. He personally knows us. Next. He personally protects us. Verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Now notice how many times the word through is used. Through the waters, through the rivers, and through the fire. The promise here in Isaiah chapter 43 is that not that God would take us around these things. That's usually our prayer. Take me around cancer. Take me around loss. Take me around frustration. Take me around marital strife. But sometimes God takes us through those things. The promise is not that he will cause us to avoid them, but that he will make sure that we are not overwhelmed, that we are not consumed, that he'll be with us as he leads us through these things. Now, when we read this, we read it metaphorically. But when the first readers of Isaiah read it, they took it literally. Because in their past, they had experience with water. Their ancestors had gotten to the edge of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was pursuing them. They were stuck. They were either going to drown if they went forward, or they were going to be captured and returned to slavery in Egypt. But you remember what God does through Moses. He parts the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. He led them through the water. Forty years later, they're standing at the edge of the promised land. A land that God had said they would inherit. It was a rich land flowing with milk and honey. What's blocking them? The Jordan River flooding. But God gives them instructions. He holds the water up. They walk across on dry land. So what that means for us is if you're trying to put something or someone behind you, God is able to protect you. If you feel like there are some obstacles to getting the things that God has promised you, to abundant life, to the promised life, God is able to protect you from those flooding waters too. Whatever season you feel stuck in right now, that season is not going to take you down. may not be over yet, but he will be with you as he leads you through. Then it says the fire will not burn you and it will not consume you. I may have mentioned to you before, but I grew up in a small, very small country church in uh, southwest Missouri. In fact, uh, there's not one section in any of these seats today that is smaller than our whole church was. Uh, it was very small. Most of the church was my family, which is weird, but also kind of cool. And, uh, and it was a very loving church, great church, historic church. It was 100 years old. But it was about 30 minutes outside of the town that we lived in. It was on a road that you would never drive by. Even if you were lost, you still wouldn't drive by this particular church. And, but we went there faithfully all the time, served there, loved it. Um, one night we're sitting at home. My mom gets a phone call. She goes and picks up the phone. Old, old school, you know, landline. And you can tell on her face that something bad has happened. And that night, two teenagers thought that they would have a little fun out in the country. And they drove up to our church. And they set it on fire. They, they watched it burn for a while. They got in their truck. They drove down the same country road about three or four miles. Found another little small country church. 
set in on fire, uh, both totally destroyed. The next day, my parents let me skip school, and we went out to see what was left of it. It was a very, very odd thing to walk into a building that you had been in thousands of times, but there's no roof, uh, to stand behind the pulpit, which is melted and charred, to go and stand in what used to be you know, a Sunday school room that doesn't really exist anymore. And it was uh, soggy, wet, because eventually the fire department had come, but it was so far out on the country. Volunteer fire department, by the time they get there, there wasn't much left to save. And, some other churches heard about what we had, we'd experienced. And so one said, hey, this Sunday, why don't you come and meet in our church? We got some extra space. You can just come and meet there. Um, another church stepped forward and said, we can be your long-term plan until you figure out what happens next. You can either worship before our church starts or you can come a little bit after. Then another church said to us, you know, years ago we bought... 10 acres of land that we're never going to use. It was just a good deal. It was almost too good to pass up. We had money at the time, but we're never going to move out there. And so we'd like to give you that land. Now, the problem was it was incredibly generous, but our church was very, very small. We didn't have a humongous bank account. There was no building plan formula that could really work for us. But some churches around the nation had heard about what had happened to us. And so some said, hey, you know, we're good at laying foundations, How about we come for a week with some of our guys who are good at this and we do that for you? Another church said, you know, we're really great at framing. We've got 10 guys in our church. This is what they love to do. We'll come and put up your walls. Another church came and said, well, all we do all year long is travel around the country and do sheetrock. Could we do that for you? Electricians, plumbers. Finally, our church was built. In the meantime... Even though we were in borrowed spaces at odd times, our church began to grow. And by the time we moved in, it kept growing and kept growing. And within six or seven years, the church went from about 30 people to 700 people. That fire was the hardest and best thing that had ever happened to our church. It may feel like your life is on fire right now. And the fire department is too far away to come and help you. It, it, it may be the hardest thing that will ever happen to you. It also might be the best thing that ever happened to you. It might be that God can take something devastating and work something good out of it because he personally protects us. Next, he personally chooses us. Look at the second half of verse 3. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. In the second half of verse 4, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Now, Egypt we're familiar with. Cush and Seba were kingdoms in Africa similar to Egypt. Very rich, fertile, exotic kingdoms along the Nile River. What God is saying is, I wouldn't trade those amazing kingdoms that have everything going for them. I wouldn't trade you for them. And you hear adoptive parents talk like that. That's why adoption is one of the best, most vivid, most impactful pictures of the gospel of Jesus. Because you hear adoptive parents talk like this to their adoptive children, we chose you. Now, if you have biological children, you may have chose to have children, but it's a different kind of choosing. With biological children, you don't go and sign papers. 
to declare, hey, we choose you. You weren't our son, now you are our son. You weren't our daughter, now you are your daughter. With biological children, you don't go and stand before a judge and raise your right hand and solemnly swear to become a mom or to become a dad to this child. There's a special choosing. That's why it's no wonder when God went to describe how you and I ended up in his family, he used adoption as that picture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. How did you get into God's family? You're a really good person. No. You acted really Christian. No. You just kind of kept hanging around. No, you got into God's family because before he even created the world, he looked through time and space. He saw you, said, I want to adopt you. You're not in my family now, but you are going to be in my family. He personally chose you. Next, he personally loves us. Verse four, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, And I love you. Now I'm going to be honest. I don't love the word precious. Doesn't do very much for me. Because when I was a kid, my sister got a Cocker Spaniel and named her Precious. And no offense to any Cocker. I don't need any emails about how great Cocker Spaniels were. This one was stupid. That's not even a judging statement. That's a fact. And she was nasty. Lot, I mean, just saying her name sends a chill down my spine. <laughs> so when I read the word precious, I got to substitute it for something. Now, that's not the Bible's fault. That's my fault. I'm bringing that to the table. <laughs> but the other thing that this word precious means is, is it, it means to appraise, right? Which sounds a little bit more familiar to us, doesn't it? Because you get an appraisal for only one thing. Most of us regular people in here, you get an appraisal for your house, right? Most of us don't have cars that need appraisals. It's like junk, you know. Uh, because it's the most valuable thing you'll ever own or co-own with the bank. You get it appraised. And that's what God is communicating here to Israel. You are of extreme worth to me. That's what God is saying to us today. Personally, you are of extreme worth. He personally loves us. Next, he personally and finally Restores us. Verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Which brings us back to the story of Isaiah. God is a personal God, and he made himself available to Israel, and yet... They rejected him and they chose that list of idols, some form or another. They chose a transactional relationship with gods that don't exist. And God sent prophet after prophet to remind them. These are not real. As the Apostle Paul said, these these are idols of demons. This is not real. Why would you give yourself to these things? But the people, they just wanted the transaction. I give this, then hopefully I will get that. And God would send prophets to say... In love, turn back to God. And, and they refused. And so God sends Isaiah to say, now is judgment time. The fire is going to come. Literally, Jerusalem was going to be burned down. The waters are going to come and scatter the people. 
all over the place. But even in the midst of this judgment that's coming, God planted seeds of hope and restoration. God says, I'm going to bring you back. From the north and the south and the east and the west, you, your descendants, I'm going to bring you back to Israel. He was going to personally restore them. You know, I mentioned Samuel earlier about him waking up to this personal relationship with God. I have my own experience with that. When I was probably 13 or 14 years old. My parents sent me to summer camp and that was really where I met God, which by the way, is shameless plug. Send your kids to summer camp. It starts this week. You can register online, bodycityfellowship.com. I was there. I was a church kid. Not particularly rebellious in any way. Not perfect for sure. But I had believed in Jesus for as long as I could remember. Each night we would come together, middle schoolers and high schoolers, and gather in this room. And there would be, I mean, it felt a lot like church. Songs and sermon. And I'd been in that setting a thousand different times in my life. And on the first night, I heard God calling my name, not like Samuel, not by my name specifically and and not audibly like Samuel probably heard, but just he started to speak to me. And I did what you would do in that situation, what Samuel did, which is like, surely that cannot be God. That has to be something else. The next night, got back in that same room and the same thing, same feeling, same way, same words that appeared in my heart and in my mind. That was the week that I woke up to a personal relationship with God that was distinct from my mom and dad distinct from my pastor distinct from the people sitting next to me but it was personal that's been my prayer for you today that you would wake up today to the Lord your God to the Holy One and to your Savior Let's pray.